Hey, this is Kevin Weeks, and you're listening to the Tomahawk Roundup. Sounds great. All right, so what is going on, guys? This is Frank Zorowski here with the Tomahawk Roundup, and I am joined by an NHL staple in the broadcasting and goaltending community, Kevin Weeks of the NHL Network. Kevin, how are you today? I'm great, thanks, Frank. Hope you're doing well, and same for all the NHL fans and listeners that are tuned in around the world. Hope they're all healthy and safe in this uh, really challenging time for so many of us, and all of us, really. Yeah, for sure. We all wish our Tomahawk Roundup and NHL Network fans to stay safe, wash your hands, and wear a mask. Absolutely. No question. Yeah, so I have to ask you, I did a lot of work uh, with the Chicago Wolves of the, the American League who were with the International League. What is the difference playing goaltender in the International League versus the NHL from a player's perspective? I mean, in the old IHL, it was interesting because I felt like the I, the IHL in in the '90s and early 2000s that was more of it was kind of a diluted NHL. I only say that with respect because there were a lot of veteran former NHL players, uh, in certain instances, guys that had played for extended periods of time, and then uh, in other instances, you had other players who played in the NHL for some time, maybe not as long, but nonetheless, there's a lot of experience a lot of leadership and that NHL experience. So, for example, I know, you know, when I played, for example, we had Robin Bow on our team and Bowser played in, in San Jose. Very tough man, by the way. Great leader, great guy, um, good veteran guy, really good player. He was really good for us. In addition to him, you know, when I played in Detroit, we had Brad Shaw, who was an NHL guy and then came back to the NHL with us in uh, with Tampa when – the Detroit Vipers, our group, ended up buying the Tampa Bay Lightning at the time. Our late owner, Mr. Davidson, had owned the Pistons. I mean, there's so many guys. Andre Trefalov, who's my goalie, my goalie partner in Detroit, he too had played the NHL. Jeff Sargent, my goalie partner in Detroit, he too played the NHL in St. Louis. So we had guys, not only as teammates in my two years in the eye in Fort Wayne and then Detroit, but guys that I played against too that had played in the NHL or had a taste of the league. So... It was an older league, a more experienced league. And then since you're talking about Chicago Wolves, they had aces that played there too, like Steve Malte, who was a legend in Chicago. Oh, yeah. For the Wolves. You know, Maltz was a great player for that franchise for a long time. They had, uh, you know, same thing, longtime NHL coach and John Anderson and any player in John Anderson who coached the, the Wolves for years. We had Steve Ludzik and John Torchetti who coached us with the Vipers and, uh, and Fort Wayne respectively. So... That was a great league. I love my time there, and I'll share this with the listener. The late Brian Murray, a great NHL manager and GM and coach, he was our GM of the Florida Panthers at the time. And I remember him telling me, I played two years in the AHL at, at that point, started both years, fresh out of junior, as a number one goalie. And I remember him telling me my third year, he said, listen, you got to go down to the eye and play against real men. And if you go down there and you show you can, what you can do, what we think you can do, I'll trade Mark Fitzpatrick, and I'll create a, an opening for you here with the Panthers. And literally, that's what I did. I went down to Fort Wayne. Uh, and we, we went literally up to first place in the league in about six weeks or whatever it was, two months, and the rest was kind of history from there. Yeah. So I got recalled, and that was my experience. I love the old IHL. I love that league. I really think it's a shame from a development standpoint and also just in terms of job creation and, and hockey fans. I really feel like we missed the mark in disbanding that league. That was a great league that served a great purpose. I, I couldn't agree more. I was unfortunately not around for that league. Uh, 
little bit before my time, but I hear stories, like you said, from Steve Malte when I talked with him about his time in the eye, just uh, Wendell Young when I talked with him. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a great league from everything I've heard. Obviously, wasn't we'll never get to witness the original uh, old IHL, but hopefully it comes back in some form or fashion in the future. Totally. I think that'd be amazing. Listen, at the end of the day, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I knew at that time, I didn't like the, I didn't like the rationale with the disbanding of that league at the time. And the reason why I didn't is the great part about having at that time the number two league in the NA, in North America, excuse me, behind the NHL. The great part about that is you had another opportunity for guys to play elite hockey. And for people to involve women and men in, in the game and fans in the game at a high level. And, you know, in an instance like mine, in the first go-round where I had a contract dispute, I was able to go and play in that league. Sergey Samsonov played in that league. I mean, there's so many guys. Sean Burke during his uh, contract dispute. Nikolai Happy Bullen, same thing. I mean, there's so many different players. Radic Bonk that played in that league, that came out of that league, that played in the NHL or played in the league before. And it was a great stepping stone. And I mean, the old, for us playing in Detroit at the old Palace of Auburn Hills, we led the league in attendance. I mean, we were averaging 12,000 people a night in Detroit. And that's when the Red Wings were the best team on planet Earth. That's... We are still averaging 12,000 people a night. So it's crazy how that league disbanded. And, and reason being is now you look at a situation like today, and now you don't have enough places for your prospects and your younger players to play. Yes, yeah. HL teams are overloaded, and they haven't started operations. Your East Coast teams, uh, some of the East Coast teams won't even play this year, unfortunately. Some yeah. of the CHL teams. It's uh, very buddies, sad. Yeah, my buddies who coach, assistant coach and head coach with Cincinnati Cyclones, they won't have anybody. Uh, they, they won't have, they're not having a season. They've opted out of the season, unfortunately, as have other teams. So it, it's, it's crazy sometimes what you wish for, but I think on a go-forward basis, It'd be important for us to reestablish that league at some point and have some more control here in North America and more opportunities for uh, for women and men to be in the game and certainly for, for younger players, even older players, to be able to play at elite levels because AHL is all about development. But the IHL, I found a mature league, and it was a really great vehicle uh, from the NHL and to the NHL. Yeah, and that's and that when you talk about that that second uh, elite league, you like you said, the, the the AHL teams are they they just don't have enough spots on. Like I was talking exactly. with with uh, one guy from my area who basically he's playing for an AHL team, but they're overloaded with defensemen and he can't get a lot of spots. He can't get a lot of playing time. If he had some, if we had the IHL, maybe he'd be getting like a top or second pairing defensive contract. No question. I mean, listen. At the end of the day, it's all about ice and repetitions, right? So. If you get the ice time, you're getting the repetitions. If you don't, you don't. And when you don't control it, I mean, here's one of the challenges, too, with ownership. And, and when you don't control things, and this is business 101, then you're subject to a lot of the other market forces and factors, right? So we had a really good thing going. I know when, again, for example, when I played with the Detroit Vipers of the IHL, our late owner, as mentioned, Mr. Davidson, the great Mr. Davidson that owned the Detroit Pistons, he did everything first class, and he treated our team, the, the IHL team, he treated us like the Pistons. Like, we we were on round ball one on the Pistons plane, like, from Detroit to Kalamazoo. It was like a 20-minute flight. It was longer to get to Detroit Airport than it was to get to Kalamazoo and or to Grand Rapids. We flew everywhere. 
and you know we had all the same amenities per diem. We had bonuses. Everything was first class. We were in the you know we were in the Palace of Auburn Hills, which at the time was 15 years ahead of its time in terms of an arena venue. Even when I played in Fort Wayne, we had a smaller setup, but we had still had a great setup. John Torchetti did a great job there too, uh, in running our group. And you know the Franchi family owned the team. They still own the team to this day. It was it was a, and it is remains a great minor league hockey city, and it was a great product and a proud franchise. So, in saying that, people had places to play. And to your point, like your buddy now, there there aren't enough spots. And if you see what's happening now by way of COVID. It's not just that the NHL and NHL teams are are, uh, are, on, are haven't started playing, rather, but here's the challenge. What about all your prospects right. in your funnel? Right? Like, now you're trying to, I mean, some teams have gotten so resourceful, like the LA Kings, for example, they have some, some teams, some of their young prospects playing in Germany, for example. You know, they literally, <laughs> NHL teams are literally placing their prospects all across the world right now. To play. Some kids are playing in Sweden, some in the Czech Republic, some uh, some in Switzerland, some in the KHL, which is another animal in and of itself. So, like I said, if we had maintained that league, you maintain ownership, you maintain control, which gives you options. Yeah. Now, we don't have as many options because you had an amazing league that was very viable, and I, I don't like the way it went down. It was kind of shady the way that league disbanded, which mm-hmm. I don't respect because it was such a great league. And now we come full circle, and now it was like, ah, where are our players going to play? What are we going to do? Type thing. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, hopefully that's a, there's a lesson learned there because player development for for young girls and boys that play the game, and or if you're a young pro, you're coming out of college, you're a female aspiring Olympian, you played college, you need to be able to find places to play. Mm-hmm. We see that challenge in this game right now too. Yeah. So although you wore number eighty. Uh, you were yeah. you were the ins- you wanted to wear double zeros. Where did the inspiration yeah. behind wanting to wear double zeros come from? I have to ask. Yeah, so double zeros was a pretty cool, like a super cool number in the '80s, playing minor hockey in Toronto and stuff. And Mike Torquia, who played, ended up playing for the Kitchener Rangers in the Memorial Cup in 1990, was drafted by Dallas, but played for the Dallas Stars for a little bit. But he was an awesome goalie, and he grew up in our neighborhood back home. He's about three years older than me. He grew up playing with Lidros, with Eric, that is. And Torch was awesome. He was a great, great goalie. And he wore double zero, and I thought it looked really cool. So I started rocking it, and it became my number. And I rocked it through junior, through the minor, like through the AHL. And then when I got to Fort Wayne in the IHL, I wore it. And then Detroit Vipers, I ended up wearing 80 because once I got to the NHL, they had a number rule where you couldn't wear double zero anymore. Yeah. In fact, my you know my buddy Marty Baron, he he wore double zero in junior too in the Quebec League, and then when he got called up in I think ninety five or ninety six to play an emergency game for Buffalo, uh, he wore double zero too, and he was the last guy to wear it. And then for whatever stupid reason, the league said so it's technically not a number. I don't know. So whatever. At that point, eighty was the closest looking number to double zero, and I started playing hockey in nineteen eighty. My parents, our first address was 580, so it had the 80 in it. Mm-hmm. I liked Jerry Rice at the time as a wideout, obviously the legendary Jerry Rice for the sure. 49ers. So it all just made sense, and that 80 was the closest looking number, and I had some personal significance behind it. But to this day, I miss my double zeros. That was my original number. Yeah, you can't, number. you can't beat the style of the 80s with double zeros. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, that was a fresh number, man. So it's just kind of weird. It's, it's weird how things can throw you for a loop but I'll be honest 
a lot of people say that numbers don't matter. I mean, listen, you're trying to get in the door, whatever, you get to training camp, they throw you a number, the trainers throw you a number, then you're an idiot if, if you say, hey, I, this is my number, and then they, sometimes they take it they take it personally. Or sure. Fans are, but nonetheless, I really think that your number is a big part of, of your feel and your identity, and I'm a big believer in look good, feel good, play good. So I know at different times when I wore different numbers, I felt different. I got used to 80. 80 became my trademark, but at times I wore one or I was forced to wear one or 40 or what. I just didn't feel the same. Yeah. I, I, I personally didn't actually feel the same on the ice. It's interesting, but, you know, it's a psychological game out there too, especially for goalies, as you know. Oh, yeah. The mental the mental game, it means everything. If you're Like you said, look good, feel good, play good. If you're not right. feeling your best, you're not going to play your best. Totally. Totally. I mean, I learned that. To be honest with you, I really learned the value of that. Again, my late minor hockey coach, uh, the late Keith Armstrong, who was great. Had not for him, I wouldn't be here today. And this is our first Toronto Red Wing AAA team. I would have been, so it was 83? 83. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1983. Like, we had everything custom. We had, our jackets were custom. Wow. Ball hats were custom. T-shirts, matching sneakers. If we were dressed up, we had gray, gray dress pants, white dress shirt, red tie, Toronto Red Wing jacket, stick bags, all of our bags, decals on our helmets. Like, we were pro. We were pro before we were pro. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that was really, yeah, I mean, that was really uh, impactful, you know, because my parents raised my sister and I like that, too. So it started at home. But to have a coach in hockey that echoed those things at the time and, and really imparted those things on our young group, to me, that was really, really impactful about look good, look good, feel good, play good. And we'd walk into the arena and people would be, oh my God, that's, that's Red Wings. Oh my gosh, that's Mike Pekka. Oh my gosh, that's, that's Kevin Lee. That's Paul. That's Mike Nemirovsky. That's this person. That's Luigi Kelsey. Oh my gosh. Like we just, we turned heads. Yeah. We played that way too, but, but more importantly, we presented ourselves that way and we represented each other and our teammates and our families as young boys. Like, and our jersey in that proud organization. We, we represented that with, with pride and with class. Yeah. So that goes a long way to me. And that presentation meaning, like presentation is everything. If you're going in with this mindset where I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. Like I have a buddy that plays in Sioux Falls and he says, yeah. Frank, confidence is everything in hockey. If you don't, it doesn't matter if you're the best player in the world. If you're not confident in your abilities, you will fail. Oh, 100%. Make no mistake about it. Listen, um, you know, a lot of times people say, well, presentation doesn't matter. I don't know. Uh, maybe if you're a rocker and you're playing in a grunge band or, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. Know, but I, I don't know. Maybe because that's a different different kind of elk and a different flavor. But from my experience, and again, my parents raised me this way and then my sister, same thing. The way they brought us up. They'll be proud of who you are. Be proud of where you come from. Be proud of your family. And you know, always represent yourself in a way that's decent and, and, and classy and you look put together no matter where you're going. Whether you're casual or you're you're formal or you're in between, and yeah, you have to look good, feel good, play good. I, I knew that since I was young. And you're right; that attitude's a huge part of it, uh, in the sense of believing in in yourself, feeling good about yourself and your self concept as a person, and you know, as a professional, whatever you're into, or as an athlete, professional, or whatever line of work. And listen, you know, we have MLB NHL Network now. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you spoke to, to some of our, uh, you know, some of my coworkers and in, in Jameson Coyle and, and Brian Lott, and they'll tell you that I never show up to the studio 
unless it's an early meeting and I'm on a rare early show and the meeting is at noon and I'm not on the air till four, because in which case I'll go there and come back. Yeah. And then go back to the studio. But if it's a regular time slot for me, I don't leave here without my suit on. Like yeah. I'm ready for TV when I leave the house. That's 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 an that's an incredible mindset, and that's... I'm ready for TV when I leave the house. And I tell them straight, I'm like, yo, just turn the camera. On. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's let's do and it. That's what I'm going there to do. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going yeah. there to. And don't get me wrong, different people live in different places because we have people that some people that commute. Actually, most people that commute from out of state and you know different parts of the country and people that come from back home in Canada. And there's different variables for people. Mm -hmm. But for me, intentionally, you know, we uh, bought and built our house. It's 10 minutes from the studio and I, I leave here and I'm the same thing when the studio is back home in Toronto I leave here and when I leave here I'm, I'm ready to roll yeah and My that's on pocket square everything let's go yeah you, you gotta be you gotta be ready ready for anything and be ready like I said like I say on time is uh, five minutes early that's what my dad's uh, co-worker says for all the meetings and nice. and when you when you present it like that it, you're, you're being early and you, thus you're being on time. Right, exactly. And just feeling proud about who you are and, and what you represent and having a, you know, having a higher level of, of self-esteem and your self-concept and, you know, your last name. And everybody's grown up and has different different realities, what their home life or whatever that looks like or what their upbringing looks like and feels like. But nonetheless, by, by and large, even you incorporated, like you 101, you incorporated, mm -hmm. showing up there and, and being a pro and, and looking like a pro and being ready to go and not, you know, not looking like you spent three nights out in the, in the bush <laughs> showing up and expecting people to take you seriously. And then people are going to say, well, it doesn't matter. Like, really? Yeah. I, I always say, like, if I, I go on the air, know the exact same that I know about hockey, have the exact same acumen, have the exact same resume, the exact same background of, of hockey expertise and if I showed up looking differently than I do with hair being differently than it is or um, you know different things and then people are gonna they would never take me seriously even though I have all that behind me right right like they would be like ah, well, ah, we don't, ah, we can't really, ah, ah, I'm not really sure ah, mm. and then it creates distractions so to me you know my suit's it's pressed, my shirt's pressed, my tie's on, my, maybe I have a tie bar on, pocket square, the shoes are polished, my cologne's on, and my hair's cut, and I'm shaving, and I'm ready to roll. And I think that's a sign, that, like I said, I think that's respect for my parents and my family, my background, you know, our family, um, extended friends, it's a, it's a sport, and our network, it's the NHL's network too, and any other platform I go on, yours, anybody else's, it's an honor and an earned privilege to be on, and you want to respect your viewer listener as well too in that process. So, so that's really important to me. Yeah. Respecting the viewer listener and having respect for yourself. So shifting gears to the later stages of your career, you actually switched from New York playing with the Rangers to finishing your career with the Devils. How was it playing for both sides of a rivalry and how do playing for both sides of a rivalry change your perspective on that said rivalry? Yeah, it was pretty interesting. I mean, you know what, it was really cool actually playing for all three of the New York area. Teams. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's what was neat about that is each organization has its own history and its own kind of realities around that history and, and everything else in their own fan base. So playing for the Islanders is cool because we were scrappy. We, we got traded there in a huge trade. It was just before Christmas. And you know, I, 
literally just got traded to New York, myself, Dave Scatchard, and, and Billy McCall at the time. And that was, it was like a shockwave when that trade happened. And for us, there was a lot of emotional kind of weight behind the trade and then coming here to New York and literally it was a young team. We had a lot of really good young players that went on to play a long time, a couple Hall of Famers to be in Roberto Luongo and Zdeno Chara on that team. But a lot of good players, Kenny Johnson, Brad Isbister, uh, Billy McCall, as I mentioned, Dave Scatcher. So many of us ended up playing in the league a long time. And, but the team was in flux, right, as a young team. And the ownership was in flux. And it was just a different time in that group. So we liked it at the time. We were scrappy, we were young, and we wanted to play the Rangers and beat all these good teams and gauge ourselves against a lot of the, the, the higher clubs. And then playing for the Rangers later in my career, it's cool because it was an original six team and got to play at Madison Square Garden where I loved playing since I was a rookie and enjoyed that whole thing just based on the heritage and it being original six and the history and the world's most famous arena. And then playing with the Devils was amazing because I really had and have a ton of respect for the great Lou Lamorello too. And as I did for Glenn Sather with the, with the, the Rangers, two Hall of Fame GMs, uh, you know, eight Stanley Cup rings between them, plus how much international success, too. So, Please, yeah. Yeah, right? So, what I loved about Lou is all the things I was just telling you about detail and attention to detail. And that's Lou Labarello 101 playbook. Like, that's every single detail. I'm talking every detail. And we literally moved into the new rink that is a credential center, which is a beautiful facility with the practice rink built into it. And Every single day, there was not one pebble. Forget stone, there wasn't a pebble that was upturned <laughs> in playing with the Devils. And I, you know, same thing. Hall of Fame players, Marty, uh, Patty Iliak, who's going to be a Hall of Famer in my estimation. Great players like that, Parisi, Jamie Langenbrunner, Travis Ajak, who's still there, hard to believe to this it's day. It's crazy. And a testament to him. You know, Bryce Salvador, Andy Green, Daniel Zubris played the league a long time, Colin White. Um, Mike Rupp, Stanley Cup champ with them, who works with us on the network now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, it's it's kind of weird in looking back because we had we really had a really good team and a really good group, and I think that team could have gone farther, but uh, it ended up doing so in, in, against that against the the Kings for that one Stanley Cup. Yeah. So they ended up getting there. It just took longer than we thought, but we really had a really good group of people: Jay Pandolfo, uh, John Madden. I mean, I can go up and down. So that was really cool too. So, in short, just kind of seeing the difference between each one of these three New York, Metro New York area teams. And it was really cool to be exp- to be able to experience that. It certainly helped me a lot for my TV career now, for sure. Yeah, because it rounds out your perspective. You're not, you're not, oh, you're not pigeonholing yourself. Oh, I have to talk about the Rangers, have to talk about the Devils, have to talk about the Islanders. You have this broad perspective which allows you that, that grasp on the whole situation. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know what? And that, it's funny how things happen, or ironic how things happen, because even in, in my um, in my playing career, you know, and playing for different teams and playing in different markets, that also helped me because, you know, I'm not speaking out of my elbow joint like one year. <laughs> I'm speaking from experience. I know what it is to play in a Southern market. I know what it is to play in quote-unquote non-traditional hockey markets. So, for example, when people try to, try to throw darts, at non-traditional hockey markets, I'm like, whoa, you, you better back up. Mm-hmm. My boys in Tampa, not even this group that just won as a defending Stanley Cup champs, but my, you know, the original group, those guys went on to win the cup. Yeah. And oh. that franchise has been to two cups 
And then, you know, with Carolina, we got to the Cup in 02. We lost against Detroit. And then, you know, a lot of my buddies were still on that team when they went back and then won it against Edmonton. <laughs> you yeah. Know, so they've been to two Cups. Then there's the Florida Panthers have been to a Cup, which was my original team. So a lot of times, just if I didn't have that experience, I wouldn't really know what it was like. I wouldn't have lived it per se. And it would be easy, like I said, to speak out of your elbow and not really know what you're talking about. Right. And the same thing for New York and Metro New York. It's such a, I mean, it's the world's mecca, obviously, New York City. But to see how much they love hockey and, you know, the Flyers are just down the turnpike from here. You have four teams within 50 miles, four NHL teams. I mean, that's that's unheard of. And it's that way for a reason. Like the passion is just bubbling over for the game, contrary to what people would think if they never lived here or played here. So it's really, really cool to have, to your point, that uh, that round, that really kind of round perspective and, and experience too. Yeah. So shifting more to you personally, Kev, you know, you were the first black hockey analyst. I mean, obviously with everything that's going on today with the Hockey Diversity Alliance, what does that honor mean to you then and now? I mean, it's a huge honor from the standpoint of anytime you're on the right side of positive history, no right. who you are. You know, I mean, we, we have a lot of different people in, in different walks of life that are on the right side of positive history. So anytime you're doing that, it's there's a lot to take from that but at the same time i don't want it to end there right that's just that that accomplishment in of itself but you know for me uh, i've helped a lot of other people that look like me and that like me get into the business I just had a conversation with a former teammate yesterday for, i don't know an hour and a half on on transitioning into media and specifically then if you tie it back to people that look like me whether it's anson carter or it was Jamal Myers. I mean, you know, I helped these guys as well. It wasn't just me coming in there and then it's stopping there. No. I know that there's other people that have that have bright perspectives and that can do a great job and that have a lot of experience and and played the league a long time and, and have character and, and all the other components that go into it, right, and work ethics. So yeah. one guy I don't know that well, I played against him, but I think he's doing an outstanding job is Jean-Luc Grandpierre on the Columbus broadcast. And what's even more impressive about that is he's he's actually a francophone. He's French. You know, he's a black francophone. I think his parents are Haitian out of Quebec. So he's actually speaking in a second language and speaking English on being uh, on the Columbus wow. Sports Ohio broadcast. So that's, that's amazing. That, that is amazing. Going in and, right? yeah, you, you have a second language. And not only are you doing good with it, um, but you're also, but you're also, you're also making a living off of it. Exactly. You're making exactly. a living off that second language. I, I studied Spanish in high school and a little bit of college. I can't even imagine broadcasting a soccer match in Spanish. There you go. That's see, that's a great perspective though, because that's shoe on the other foot.com as I like to say, right? That's yeah. shoe on the other foot. So, so you have some empathy around what that looks and feels like. So yeah, I mean, not again to, to revisit that. I didn't want it to, to end there, and it's certainly the sun doesn't rise and set on me. You know, it's, no. It's really about, as I say, it's about serving the game, being of service to the game, growing the game, and in whatever capacity you're on and in whatever role you're in. So fortunately, I've been able to do that. I continue doing that. I always look at it that way. Nice to see them doing their thing as well. Sure. It's nice to see other people you know, that aren't on my side of the color wheel that I know that I've helped or that are doing it anyways. And then there have been a lot of people, too, along the way. Like, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Shirelli Najak, who ran Hockey Night in Canada, who was our exec producer. He's still the, he's still the 
chief game producer. He's the best game producer I've ever worked with. He's a genius. Uh, you know, we have Shirelli, who's East Indian African, actually, uh, Canadian, out of Toronto. He's an outstanding guy, the best game producer I've worked with. And then you also have uh, Jeffrey Orridge, who mm-hmm. was a successor who ran CBC Sports and, and Hockey Night Canada for years and has an extensive, extensive background in media, business, and sports. And he was the head legal counsel for USA Dream Team Basketball in 92, Barcelona. Uh, just a great person, great at what he does. And then Mark Jacobson, too, who ran the NHL Network up in Toronto at the time. He works for the NHL office in Toronto now for the league for broadcasting. But all three of them were very influential in me uh, in my early career in, in transitioning into TV and, and believing in me and taking a chance on me. So I, I wouldn't be here without without their belief and their support either. And, and and give yourself some credit here, Kev, because all these other guys that you're talking about, you know, you have your influences, but you're an influence to the other people that look like you who are aspiring to be in the media industry and are saying, hey, that's Kevin Weeks. He knows what's up. He's, 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 he's pushing forward. You said the right side of history, pushing the ball forward an inch at a time, a broadcast at a time, a line at a time. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, listen, to me, I, 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 for the most part, representation really matters. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I'll be frank about that because there were instances when I was young, we had the great Grant here and then we had other black goalies too, Walking Gage, Freddie Brathwaite, and, you know, these other guys that were awesome that played in the league. And But then there was times when I was literally the only black goalie on planet Earth in the NHL. Mm. Like, Literally. Yeah, and then Ray came, and then we had Ray. God bless his soul. He ended up passing as well. Yeah, um, and that tragic accident. But you know, then we had Ray, and then we kind of had a little snippet here and there. But we we haven't had that consistency. And now we have Malcolm, who's trying to find his footing, and at times played really well in Vegas. And now he's going to get an opportunity in Chicago. But it's it's really challenging. It's been challenging that way to have a lot of succession and growth, certainly in the goal position. Seth Jones is an amazing player. He's one of the best players in the league. You know, perennial all-star with Columbus, him and Zach Wierenski. Mm-hmm. But it's it's been difficult that way to sustain, especially from the goaltending standpoint in terms of representation. So, yeah, I, I mean, from a media standpoint now where I am, I think that's equally important, if not even more, more so. And you don't want things to be an anomaly either at some point. Like at some point, part of growth is, is so things become normalized. Right. So it's not like, hey, there's a black hockey broadcaster. Or, hey, hey, man, the black goalie's in there tonight. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, hey, it's, a, it's a goalie. The, the Chinese goalie's in there tonight, or the Japanese goalie's in there tonight, or whatever it is. It's a goalie. But at some point, you just want people to, listen, I, I know who I am. I love my heritage. I'm a proud, you know, Barbadian, Canadian-American. And I'm very proud of all three of those countries and shaping me. But at some point, and, and as a black man as well, I'm very proud of all that. But at some point, too, you want to be taken seriously for your ability to do the craft and you don't want it to be as novel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you want it to be at some point, it's like, Oh, there's, there's a goaltender who happens to be Barbadian or who, or who happens to be, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are. If you're doing the job, right. Give them the darn opportunity. Totally, man. Totally. Yeah. Totally. You know, so, um, that's, uh, that's, that's my whole thing. That's that's my whole thing. I think that so that representation, it doesn't matter where you are. You know, sometimes it's I don't know, you're Jewish, you're Russian, you're Polish, 
uh, you're Latino, you're East Indian, you're Asian, Irish, Greek, Russian, Russian Jewish. I mean, Portuguese, Brazilian. There's so many different ways I can slice it. Right. And, and quite frankly, you know, that's that's part of what's been so upsetting about some of the, the racial inequality stuff. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, obviously, obviously that starts topically with us as, as black people and, and how dis- disappointing it's been and how long it's been and how many years and generations it's been. <laughs> Honestly, it's, yeah. it's embarrassing. It is. It is. And But what's also hard about that is there's so many black people and then there's so many of the other people that I talked about who've had such an amazing impact in North America, right? And across right. all different industries. So, I mean... You didn't have a problem with Michael Jordan being black. No. You didn't really have a problem with the late, great Kobe Bryant or Tina Turner or Oprah or, I mean, Magic Johnson, Tiger, Venus, Serena. Like, you know what I mean? You, just, you can go on forever. Like Biggie, Mary J. Blige. Like, I, can go on, I can literally go on forever. Like Al Roker, Robin Roberts, Michael Strahan. Like, you can literally go on for the next, I don't know, two hours about people. And, and not only Denzel Washington, I mean, Tyson Beckford, the first black male super, or the first male supermodel, period, with Polo in the 90s. There's just so many different people that have touched and touched greatness or have been great or exemplified greatness in so many different sectors. And, you know, I, I started with us as, as black people, but same thing for Italian. I mean, you, <laughs> does, does Frank Sinatra, like, I mean... Does the name ring a bell? Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Dean Martin's name ring a bell? Like, I mean, we can, literally, we can go all around with so many different people from different backgrounds that have helped make North America specifically, um, here in the United States, of course, and back home in Canada, that have made it great in their own ways of greatness and that have been world class. So it's, you know, people kind of conveniently forget that, that Wayne Gretzky's Polish. Yeah, like, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that Robert Luongo's Italian or that Chris Chelios' parents are Greek. If people for, kind of forget that, and I mean, these are some of the best people in the history of the world of what they did, right? And they and it so, fades from their mind, yeah, exactly. So, it's sometimes I just feel that you know, it's, it's interesting how people want to make it like a buffet, and I'll take a little bit of this, I won't take that, I'll take a little right. bit, of that, I won't take this. You take the whole and, package. You got to take the whole package, you know. And I always use the example like I, I think Philly's an amazing city just down the turnpike from us here, although we're just outside New York City and in New York City. But Philly, not that far away. Loved playing there since I was in the American League and playing the old Spectrum, I might add. And anytime you play in there, you know the atmosphere is going to be hype. You know it's going to be mm-hmm. great. It's a great sports city. But I had instances where sometimes people were calling me the N word in Philly. Yeah, that's disgusting. And, and sometimes there were young kids, like, and their parents around the bench. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, and there were instances specifically with this, this one, this, this, this group of people where I saw them at a Sixers game cheering for Allen Iverson. Uh, uh, like, well, what, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, hold on a second. Did you forget that Allen Iverson also happens to be black? Or is it just because he's playing? Right. For the Sixers, and I'm, you know, on a visiting team playing against mm-hmm. the, the Flyers, and then of course Wayne Simmons, yeah, from back home, he used to come to my camp as a kid. You know, Wayne Simmons goes on and has an excellent career. It's a quintessential Flyer, still playing now. He's signed with the Leafs. He's a Toronto guy too. Yeah, but nonetheless, they loved him there in Philly. So 
so it's just kind of interesting how it becomes so selective and picky and choosy and like i say like a buffet for people uh depending on which way the wind's blowing but you know that those things to me say more about those people the perpetrators and their lack of character and the holes that they have in their character than they do about the people that they're trying to discredit yeah and that and it's and it says a lot about the people who who can say hey this isn't this isn't this is this is about them it's not about me totally a hundred percent you know you yeah. know what i'm saying so yeah i know exactly I what know. you're saying it's, it's an interesting one it's a really interesting one and listen at the end of the day you know a big part of a big part of sports and really should be life because the two are intertwined in so many ways is it's, it's really about character you know you're going to learn the skills. You might be able to refine the skills. You're going to get to an elite level if you're elite just based on your work ethic and your amazing skill and your, your work to make your skills better and your aptitude and your talent. But a lot of it is in the soft skills and, like, the human traits. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like yeah. Ball, hitting a fastball or a curveball is one thing. Throwing a curveball or a breaking ball is another thing. You know, throwing a 50-yard rope for a touchdown like Patrick Mahomes against the great is another thing. Being... I don't know, Mia Hamm on the U.S. women's soccer team is another thing. But it's it's everything in between in terms of how you conduct yourself really as a person. And it's not to say that people don't make mistakes so they don't have hard days or, you know, nobody's perfect. But at the same time, for the most part, when you carry yourself a certain way, that's really what it's all about. And a lot of times people only expect that from the athlete. And that's where people fall short. Like, you want Tom Brady to show up at, you know, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. You want him to show up. Or, you know, this female athlete, you want a hand-signed tennis racket from Serena for your daughter that's in hospice. Okay. But then next thing you know, you're going to use racial epithets at people. Mm, exactly. It, it, it makes no sense. Like, what are you actually doing? So, so yeah, the character that comes from, uh, from those that play and those of us that have played and those of us that are in the game and in the business... You know, you're expecting that, but you you also have to reciprocate that in everyday life, whether you're a fan, viewer, listener, you know, you work at FedEx, UPS, you're a restaurateur, you've got to, you have to exemplify a lot of those things that you want out of people too. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and that's a big thing. Exemplify, be what you want others to be exactly. to you. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And don't let it be a one way street because I've seen that far too often, you know, it's been I went to my first training camp in 93. I'm 45, so I was 18. It was my first NHL training camp, and that's a long time ago. And and I've seen, you know, obviously you have so many experiences through being in the league this long between playing and broadcasting. Yeah. And for the most part, so many of them are amazing. But for some of the things I've seen, some of them are unspeakable. And I don't want this generation of players and or their families to have to go through a lot of the things that I've gone through. I, I just, I, I would... I would like to spare people of that, and I'd like to think that, uh, from a humanitarian standpoint, that we're way beyond where we are. Although in certain instances we're not, and yeah. hopefully, hopefully during this time, there's been enough conscious reflection. And I certainly know from people that aren't on my side of the color wheel, or on the lighter side of the color wheel, to the white side of the color wheel, that have been really uh, supportive and compassionate and empathetic. And you just hope that that continues, because at the end of the day, we all bleed. We're all people. Yeah, we're all bleed. We all bleed. We're all people. Kevin Weeks of the NHL Network. Kev, is there anything else you want to add for our listeners around the world, U.S., Canada, and beyond? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, listen, you know, one thing I always talk about, I'll, I'll maybe add a couple points, but one of the things I, I always talk about is just trying to be your best. And, you know, don't settle for watching everybody else. And this is a slippery subject just because I love our NHL and our sports fans so much and appreciate them so much, all of you around the world that are tuned in. But don't always just get pleasure out of watching everybody else be great or, or uh, succeed. You know, see yourself succeeding too in whatever it is you're doing or whatever your endeavors are. You know, because at the end of the day, there's no NHLville, for example. We don't live in NHLville. And what I mean by that is... <laughs> Although we have great players, coaches, and people in the business, you know, broadcasters, analysts, you name it, GMs, trainers, equipment managers, we can't perform open heart surgery. So we need you to be the Sidney Crosby yeah. of, of heart surgeons. You know what I mean? We need you to be the Jonathan Tays of crossing guards. We need you to be um, the Austin Matthews of senior care. We need you to be, you know, the Hillary Knight of, uh, of dental surgery. Like, that's really what it comes down to. And it's great. We appreciate everybody as fans and as viewer listeners, but don't don't sell yourself short and don't cut your own your own opportunities short and just derive pleasure out of watching your favorite players or performers or athletes or entertainers. You know, we we're counting on you to be great in what you do as well. So that's really important. And then uh, I would also say, aspire to do big things. Aspire to do big things. I remember being literally. Being 10 years old, years old with 10 cents in my pocket going to a convenience store. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I know that feeling. And oh my gosh, am I going to get a job breaker? Or am I going to get a, you know, a, a sour tea? Am I going to get hot and cinnamon hot lips? Am I going to get a double bubble gum? Like, okay, then you got 25 cents in your pocket. All right, I can buy a pack of hockey cards. Right. And at the time, a small pack of chips was, was 25 cents. So I, I, I literally know what that's like to being where I am today. And that's and, and that's a beautiful thing. Yes, and I appreciate everything in between. So I know what it is to make, you know, to have 10 cents and be sneaking into my mom's uh, purse or sneaking into my dad's jeans. And I know what it is to make $30, $35 a week playing junior in the OHL to, you know, making $37,000 and playing in the minors and, and eating at Denny's and TGI Fridays playing in the NHL and you know, being a broadcaster and, and being an entrepreneur now. And I know everything in between. And I can tell you I get much more pleasure. Today's my sister's birthday. I think I actually have to order some new reads for her back home. But I get much more pleasure being able to support my family and, you know, help my parents retire and buy them their dream home and be able to put money in their pocket as opposed to being able to take money out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. As a youngster, I derive more pleasure out of that. So... Uh, now as, as an adult. So I would say that set ambitious goals for yourself and hang around the right people. If you get around the wrong people for the wrong, for the wrong reasons, unfortunately it could be catastrophic as it would be for any of us. So try to surround yourself with quality people uh, that aren't crooked, that aren't doing the wrong things, that aren't into drugs, that aren't into the bad stuff. And Show me your friends and I show you your future. That's really what it comes down to. So those are some of my little rules of uh, pearls of wisdom that I can impart. Show me your friends. Show me your future. I'm going to use that one. Kevin Weeks of the NHL Network. Kevin, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate my, it. My pleasure, buddy. Thanks so much for having me on. 